Hey, good to be together this morning. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Um, yeah, thanks so much for Rich and the crew for holding down the fort last weekend. And then this next weekend, we're actually going to be turning right back around and going back. So uh, I, this is a crazy season for us. We got three boys playing college football, two in Iowa, one in Kansas. And so in the last eight days, I was able to see all three boys' football games. Uh, so three college football games, uh, my nephew's high school football game, my niece's uh, club soccer game. I golfed with my son. Um, I, I uh, uh, visited some of our partners that help support Greenhouse. They partner with us. Uh, spent some great time with family and a whole bunch of other stuff. And I was able to help my family with harvest. So my family farms. And so I was able to drive a tractor and a semi and uh, get my farm boy. You can take the boy off the farm, but you can't take the farm out of the boy, right? Like that is so true. I was so, it was giddy. It, was, it, was, it wasn't even excitement. I was so giddy when they said, yeah, hop in the semi and take off. And I was like, oh, this has been like 10 years since I've done this. Do I remember it? I remembered how to drive a, a, a big rig. And then the tractor is just so much fun. Uh, one of the funniest things from the trip was actually uh, when um, I was driving tractor through the field. And I mean, this is a gigantic machine. And I just feel my testosterone level raising, just crawling into this thing. And, and I was like, okay, this is going to be a great opportunity to listen to the, to the worship gathering from last week. And uh, on comes I Speak Jesus. And I weep. I am weeping like a little child uh, just, just at the words of that song. And then to sing that together and to hear this room just explode. We're, we're not that big of a group, but yet to hear the power um, in our voices that comes from the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel in our lives. And I just love hearing that just being belted out. So it's so good to be back. Um, and I just really appreciate our team, everybody that helps uh, make our Sunday worship gathering going to be gone two more weeks yet this fall, uh, maybe more if they make the playoffs. But, but this is a narrow window of opportunity in, in our life. And I just really appreciate the support to be able to go support them. Um, a lesson learned is that it's fun to have your, your kids go to a college that they absolutely love. When it's a thousand miles away, it's really hard. <laughs> so Millie knows a little bit about that. Oh, and I forgot to mention, I, gra I grabbed Sunday lunch with Millie last Sunday because she was back in Hillsborough too. So that was kind of fun. Got to see a bunch of Game Changers crew. So anyhow, there we go. Well, as you can tell, I'm a bit of a diehard Husker fan. Um, I bring them up from time to time. Uh, even when we get slaughtered by Michigan the day before. Um, but I was, you know, born and raised in Nebraska, diehard Husker fan. Um, when I sensed God's calling on my life to go into youth ministry, I thought, I'll go anywhere, God, except where? That was pre-Big Ten days. This is Big Eight days. Uh, jog your memory. Some of you, Big Eight, not the Big 12, but the Big Eight. Where? You cheat. You're my wife. There you go. <laughs> Oklahoma. It's kind of like when, when, it's funny how certain things when you read the Bible is sort of like Nazareth. What good can come from Nazareth? Like in my mind, I think Oklahoma, right? Like what good can come from Oklahoma? Oklahoma, they were terrible people. I mean, they're awful. They're the Sooners. Like they're awful. And so guess where we went for our first youth ministry job? Oklahoma. Oklahoma. God has a sense of humor. 
And I was kind of like, oh my gosh, you know, I, I don't want to move to Oklahoma, but this, the church was kind of like, it's a really cool church. I knew a lot of people from there, knew of them. And I was sort of like, I, one, I had imposter syndrome kind of thinking, this church is talking to me? Like, there's no way. And then we went and visited. I was like, okay, I really like this place. And we started to get to know some friends and had a lot of OSU Cowboy fans and a lot of Oklahoma Sooner fans. I was like, oh, they're so nice. I hate them because they're so likable. They're such nice people. Good people, solid, salt of the earth, godly, loving, kind, smart, successful human beings. I thought that only happened in Nebraska, right? Like, and, and so it's funny because we had so many friends. One of, my, one of my friends, he's an old guy, and he was friends with none other than Barry Switzer. Barry Switzer was, the, was a longtime iconic coach. Who? Whoa, Jason, Barry, who? Right? You have Tom Osborne, the good, Nebraska. You have Tom, Barry Switzer, the evil, Oklahoma, right? It was like yin and the yang, the good and the bad, you know? Like, like, and it's funny because my buddy took me to Barry Switzer's restaurant with a group of people, and I was kind of like, oh my gosh, wouldn't that be crazy if Barry Switzer would be at his own restaurant the night that we were there? And I'm just, you know, chowing down and stuff like that. All of a sudden, I feel this big old paw on my shoulder. And I was kind of like, oh, I sense the presence of evil. <laughs> and I look up, and there is Barry Switzer in the flesh squeezing my shoulder. And he goes, I hear you're a husker. And I said, yes, sir. <laughs> like, I was like, I'm seeing the hated Barry Switzer, and he's smiling at me. He's going to kill me. I'm the, I'm, the next, I'm the next course of the meal. Like, he's going to kill me and serve me up. He was so cool. He found it. He goes, so you, you like, almost played it? Like, you know Tom Osborne? You met he goes, Tom is one of my best friends. He just, and I was like, no. No, you're evil. You're terrible. Why are you so nice? And I like you. And what's so funny is that over the years, I was kind of like, I literally hated OU with a passion. And then all of a sudden, I found myself kind of like, against anybody other than Nebraska, I'm going to cheer for him. Like, I just loved him. Just great fan base. I went to games there, met Barry Switzer. And then on top of that, God put us in a house on Sooner Drive. <laughs> Suffering for the Lord, right? Like, be careful what you pray for. But it's okay, because God brought it back around when he, when he put us on Sweet Corn Drive here in Utah. So, so there we go. It all, it all comes around. But, right, like, I could have stuck to my guns. I could have stuck to my guns and said, there's no way I'm going to that church. There's no way. I'm, I'm going to go to that church, but I'm not going to like anybody here, right? Like, they're, Oklahomans are terrible, right? I could have stuck to my guns, but I would have missed something absolutely life-changing. To this day, the, the, the church, the community, the family there is still our family. Like, they, they support us. They help make Greenhouse possible. Ten years in, and they still support us. They partner us with, with finances and, and, and prayer and, and friendships. And, and they're just such a generous, loving, caring people. One of my best friends from college is now the pastor there. And, and it's sort of like, if I would have stuck to my stupid guns and insisted on what I thought and my beliefs about something... And it was an un my, my position on that. Think of what I would have missed. All three of our boys were born. They're Okies. 
they're born in, in, in Oklahoma. Well, they were born in Oklahoma. But, but like, it, it's, it's crazy. Like, like, so much of our family history started in this little community in, in northwest Oklahoma. And I, I, I'm so thankful for that. I wouldn't change anything about it. We're all like that, though, aren't we? There's times where we have these thoughts in our heads, these beliefs, these convictions, these opinions, and, and we kind of fortify them in these silos and these echo chambers, and anything outside of it, we discard. We don't really go towards it, and, and we miss any evidence to the contrary. Now, I know this is a little bit of a silly example, right? But it kind of shows us where we're going to go in the passage today. It helps us to think about how much easier it is to stick to our biases, to our guns, to our opinions, instead of looking at what's actually really going on around us. Last week, Rich talked um, about Matthew chapter 21 and, and just a really crazy, tricky, difficult passage that he just navigated uh, beautifully. And, and I never really realized the, the whole cursing the fig tree always kind of bothered me. And hearing how Rich, Rich said, well, thank Timothy Keller. I think Rich came up with it. Um, but the whole idea of how the fig tree that Jesus is walking by, yeah, it's not seasoned to, to, to have figs on it. But if you read the context, if you understand the context is that it was supposed to have these kind of these buds, these nodules on it, right? And, and he didn't see it. It looked great because there was these leaves, and so it had the appearance of life. It had the appearance of spirituality, but it was actually dead. It was actually dead. They missed the significance of the real true king who had just ridden into his city, into his kingdom, and they continued to challenge them. This morning, we're actually going to look at the last desperate effort to question this true king got them on the ropes um, at the end of chapter 21, and then he, he uh, continues in Matthew chapter 22. We're actually going to read through it all. If you want to follow along up there, you can, or in your, in your uh, Bible or on your, your app. Or we're going to take it in a couple different chunks here. So Matthew chapter 20, uh, 22, verses 1 through 14, it goes like this. Jesus' great wedding feast for his son. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servants to notify those who were invited, but they all refused to come. So he sent other servants to tell them, the feast has been prepared. The bulls and fatted calf, uh, the fatted calf, the cattle have been killed and everything is ready. Come to the banquet. But the guests he had invited ignored them and went their own way, one to his farm, another to his business. Others seized his messengers and insulted them and killed them. Verse 7, the king was furious and he sent out his army to destroy the, mur the murderers and to burn their town. And he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready and the guests I invited aren't worthy of the honor. Now go out to the street corners and invite everyone you see. So the servants brought in everyone they could find, good and bad alike, and the banquet hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to meet the guests, he noticed a man who wasn't wearing the proper clothes for a wedding. Friend, he asked, how is it that you are here without wedding clothes? But the man had no... Said to his aides, bind, this man's, uh, bind his hands and feet and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Pretty weird passage right? Like for us, this is kind of a weird passage. There's a lot going on here. First of all, 
you have a king who's throwing an extravagant wedding feast for his son, and he sent out invites. In that day, you know, they, they actually sent out two invites. One, save the date. We're going to have a wedding. This is when it's going to be. The second invite was, it's ready, come, right? And so, like, come over here. And in, in our culture, it's kind of like, wow, you came to my wedding. I'm so honored. In that day and time, if you didn't go after you were invited, it was a dishonor. You see the difference there? Like, for us, it's kind of like, eh, I had some stuff going on, and I don't really know that many people there. I don't really know the son very well, but so I, I, I don't know. I'm going to have some other things going on that day. In that day and time, if you were invited, you went. And if you didn't go, it was a huge disrespect. It was a huge thing for them to ignore that. And it's interesting because you look at, eh, I'm going to go wash my hair. I got to go, you know, groom my dog or whatever. No, one goes to his farm and one goes to his business. It's kind of like, I got work to do. So they miss out on this extravagant feast that the king all out. What's crazy is that he sends out the first invite and then they all reject him and third invite. He goes above and beyond. The king wants the people to come to the wedding feast. He doesn't want people to miss out. And what's really sad here is that you look at how they abused and killed the ones who are inviting for the king. Now, it's a parable. What's it meaning? One, the king is God the Father. Who's the son? God the son. Jesus, right? Jesus is coming for his bride. He's, he's going to, to, it's like Jesus coming to the earth is like a marriage between the, the groom and the bride, And the messengers are the apostles, the evangelists, those spreading the word, saying, hey, Jesus is here. It's John the Baptist. What happened to him? (laughs) Cut his head off. And and it's kind of foretelling of what's going to happen to all the disciples except for one. They're all going to be killed. And so it's this metaphor, it's this symbol of what's going to happen to those who try to announce the coming of the true king. Now, I know it's horrible to have a king go in and send, you know what, you didn't come to my wedding party, so I'm going to wipe your city out. Okay, it's a parable. So this didn't actually really happen. It's a symbol of saying, hey, if you reject Jesus, why do you think you would get into heaven? You had your entire life on earth where the creator is revealing himself to us. And if we say, no, I don't want you, I don't want you, but wait, 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 I want to get in. How does that make sense? And in this day and time, and especially back then, is that's how it happened. Like, if, it, if, it, if you went against the nation, like you get wiped out. It's just the culture, it's the context in which it was, was doing. It was absolute in, in absolute destruction. It's sad, but it happened. And so, so, but you look at how he says, I gave you three chances. I tried and I tried and I tried. And what did you do? You killed those that I sent you. So what does he do? He sends his other servants out to, it says, the street corners. Actually, the Greek word for that is not street corners, because remember, the town is already destroyed. So the actual word that, that is translated in the in New Living Translation as street corners is actually the crossroads. So they go outside of town. He goes to the outsiders. He goes to where the, the, the outer loop intersects the, the, the spur coming into town, right? Sorry, I'm just coming back from Nebraska, so they have spurs there, you know. It's not a highway, it's a paved road, it's a spur, right? He goes out to the edge of town, to where the outcasts, the nobodies, the has-nots, the has-beens, whatever, the outcasts. And he says, will you come to the wedding? Guys, that's us. We weren't a part of the religious inside. We're outsiders. 
we weren't a part of God's chosen people from the beginning. We were grafted, we were adopted into that because they denied him. And so what's crazy is he brings them into town for the wedding. Now, what's with the guy that doesn't have the proper clothes? I, I think I've shared this a long time ago. One of my reoccurring nightmares that I have, I have it a couple times a year, is that I am at a wedding and all of a sudden I realize the wedding's about to start, I'm performing the wedding, I don't have my suit. And most times people want the officiant at their wedding to wear a suit. And so I'm like awkwardly like, oh, it's wadded up in the bag from the last wedding, or I don't even, I don't know what happened to my suit, doesn't fit anymore, or whatever. Like I have this horrible fear. Well, this guy, is this what it's talking about? No, what actually happened was that if you were invited to the wedding, you were given a robe to wear to the wedding. It was like your, your ticket to get in. You have the official robe that the king, the, the person gave to say, you are an invited one. And so this guy shows up. We don't know his intentions. Maybe he just wandered in on his own, or maybe he was more nefarious, and he was kind of like, I'm going to weasel my way in. I'm going to wedding crash, you know? And, uh, and the, the king's kind of like, hey, I didn't invite you. Why are you here? Now, I don't want to go down all sorts of weird theological rabbit trails. I want to stick to what it actually means. But people will try to get into the wedding on their own merit. That's what it actually means. Instead of being clothed, we are clothed with Christ. Christ is our invitation. Christ is our robe. We are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, not our own, not our own works, not our own achievements, not our own anything. It's, it's Christ is what clothes us and what makes us acceptable. It's kind of like where, where the Apostle Paul says, my, you know, it's, it's like filthy rags. My righteousness, the clothes that I want to get in on my own merit, is like, is like filthy menstrual rags is what that passage means. That's pretty disgusting. But he wants to prove a point in saying, if you try to get on your own merit, you're not clothed by Christ. And so the wedding, the king who invited is going to say, nice try, but no. You're here by Christ and Christ alone. He's the only way in. And so that, that helps us understand where he's coming, right? And he's kind of setting the stage of these people who are, who are going to question him now. They've been questioning, and he kind of reframes it and saying, look, this is a wedding that, that, that God the Father is throwing for God the Son, and, and people reject him, and so he's going to go outside. He's going to invite the outsiders, and we get to come. But whether it be religious people or non-religious people or whatever, we can't, they can't get in on their own. They can only come through Christ. All right, so that's the first part. Now, here we get into some fun stuff. Verse 15, then the Pharisees met together to plot how to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. They sent some of their, some of their disciples along with the supporters of Herod to meet with them. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You teach the way of God truthfully. You are impartial and don't play favorites. Now tell us what you think about this. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now this sounds really good. Maybe they believe Jesus. No, they're completely buttering him up. They're completely smoozing. I mean, look what's going on. The, the, the tip here, the, the giveaway, 
is that you have, you have the Pharisees and the Herodians, the supporters of Herod. These two groups do not get along. They are diametrically opposed to each other. The Pharisees were Jewish nationalists. They were the far right. The church, the organization, the law, the morality were their savior. That's how they got right with God, is being a, 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 through a national, religious, morality, law-based system. If you, or if you fit into this, then you're in. If you're out, then you're gone, right? Now, the supporters of Herod, the Herodians, were the other side. They actually sold out their Jewish faith for Herod. Herod was the poser king put in place by the Roman Empire. So it's kind of like sellouts, right? Like, no, the government will save us, right? Like, like it's almost kind of like the right, the far right, and the far left. Herod, Rome, the state, this earthly moral code will be our savior. Now, these two groups, like I said, are very opposed to each other, but it's amazing at how op opposition to Jesus can be a unifying factor. They set aside their differences to try to take out Jesus. And they asked a political question with spiritual implications. Does Jesus support God or the state? If he says the state, well, then he's a blasphemer and he doesn't support God. If he says support God and not the state, well, then he's a, he's a traitor. And, and either way, he's going to be in trouble, right? And they try to trick him by asking this beautifully, eloquently said, you are such a true king. You are such a true teacher. You're so good. You're so smart. Now tell us the answer to this, right? They're so duplicitous. They're so conniving that they're trying to, to, to get at him this way. So Jesus responds this way, verse 18. But Jesus knew their evil motives. You hypocrites, he said. Why are you trying to trap me? Here, show me the coin used for the tax. When they handed him a Roman coin, he asked, whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well then, he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. Genius. On this denarius is, on one side is the picture of the um, Tiberius Caesar, um, the Roman emperor, right? It has this picture on it. And then on the flip side, that had an inscription that says, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of divine Augustus. Roman emperors viewed themselves as being divine. So they weren't just a leader, they were gods. And so how could you take, it wasn't just, hey, we're going against our government. No, we're going against gods, right? And so Jesus says, hey, what belongs to this guy? Give to him. But what belongs to God, belongs to God. You see, the inscription, the image of the government, give to it, the government, right? Like, pay taxes. <laughs> don't, don't get yourself into trouble by doing stupid things, you know? Like, we make money, it has the image of the government on it, so give it back to the government, it belongs to them. But you know what? We bear the image of God. We can't give people to what didn't create them. We belong to God. And so give to Caesar what Caesar's, give to God what belongs to God. Now, what's just so interesting here is how they try to accuse and question, but he exposes their mean hearts and their evil intentions, right? And instead of getting sucked into political games, he takes it to a higher level of saying, look, stop, stop, this is God. This is God. He plays by a, by a different set of rules here. So, Give to Caesar what's Caesar's, but give to God what's God's. 
verse 23 through 33. That same day, Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, religious leaders who say there is no resurrection from the dead. They pose this question. Teacher Moses, uh, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies without children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on his brother's name. Well, suppose there were seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without children. So his brother married the widow. But the second brother also died, and the third brother married her. This continued for all seven of them. Last of all, the woman also died. So tell us... Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. Jesus replied, Your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. For when the dead arise, they will neither marry nor be given to marriage. In this respect, they will be like the angels in heaven. But now, as to whether there will be a resurrection of the dead, haven't you ever read about this in the scriptures? Long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living, not the dead. Okay, so there's this Jewish law to where if a woman did not, if a, if a, if a husband did not give his wife a male child, then when he died, the brother had to take over and try. And so this is a hypothetical situation because, I mean, if you're a woman in that day, you couldn't just live on your own very well. You'd become a beggar and you'd have to live off the system and the generosity of others. This, this is the way it was back then, right? And, um, and so the whole idea was, well, am I my brother's keeper, right? Like there's a sense of family liability here. And so if, if the, the wife's husband died without a son, then the next one would come in, and then the next one. And they would all die, and so then she dies, right? So then who would she be, who would she be together with in heaven? We kind of face that today, don't we? Because we have these, these very romantic images of what it's going to be like in heaven, of how my family is going to be together, and we're going to be this. And I even heard recently the quote, heaven just wouldn't be heaven without my wife. I love my wife, and I cannot wait to be with her in eternity. But to think that heaven is just going to be a better version of what we have on earth, I think that's selling the creator of all things a little bit short. Because if it's all about me and Nicole and our family, and, and if I'm going to be up in heaven, and it's like, but I'm not married to Nicole anymore. I'm so upset right now. And Jesus is kind of like, it's about me. It's my throne that you're circling around saying, holy, 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 right? Like, I think we have this, this, this we've sold heaven so short on that it's just going to be a better version of this. It's going to be so much different. It's going to be so much better. We're going to look back to this and say, that was almost comical. The best that the world had to offer is, is nothing compared to the worst that heaven has to offer. And I think sometimes we get stuck in this, temp this, this uh, temporary uh, physical mindset, and, and they're playing to this, right, of, of trying to say, well, how good? Again, where's the tell in this? The Sadducees didn't even believe in the afterlife, so why are they coming to him with questions about the afterlife? It's clear that they're trying to trick him up. They don't really care about the answer to this. They, they're trying to, to throw shade at him and, and kind of say, well, what do you say, right? And so Jesus does a great job of just saying, you're missing the point. 
I know that you know that you're missing the point. You're trying to trick me up, and it's not going to work. And instead of trying to answer their question, he answers the question they should be asking. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Not I was when they were alive, and now they're dead, and they are no more. God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They were resurrected. They're living with him now, right? And so that, so Jesus is kind of proving, hey, there is so much more to life than just this here on earth. I think sometimes we think that heaven is going to be, we're just going to be sitting around just reminiscing about the glory days. You know, it's so funny, like my, my, some high school buddies that I saw back in Nebraska, and we're, you know, we're out watching the high school football, and so like, oh yeah, Corb, remember when this, and oh yeah, Ryan, you remember when that, and oh yeah, that was, oh yeah, you hit me so hard, and they're like, yeah, well, I'm old, <laughs> I'm, I'm, this is literally happening to me right now, I'm, I'm, I'm reminiscing about the glory days. Heaven will be the glory days. This is just a warm-up. And to, to think that, that heaven is just going to be sitting around with some buddies and, and some friends, just, man, you remember that? And we're going to be so busy worshiping God. We're going to be so busy, like, like, in the presence of God that this is going to be like, I can't believe I thought that's all there was. I can't believe that. Such a powerful thing that they're trying to attack, and he turns it around. Okay, verse 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. One of them, an expert in religious law, I mean, please get this in your head, right? They've just been shut down time after time, and then they're like, well, let's try. I'm a religious expert. Let me, I, I know the law. And they're like, yeah, go, 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 go. You're like, go, go. What, what's your idea, right? One of them, an expert in the religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, what is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? They had over 600 laws that dominated every aspect of life. And the thing is, is it wasn't just like traffic laws that, I mean, let's be honest, they're suggestions, (laughs) right? At least in my interpretation. Um, If you broke one law, you were unworthy. The law is what made you right with God. And so if you broke even one law, you broke all of them. And so 600 plus laws that you had to make sure that you were, were enslaved to and that you, that you obeyed, and, and that's what really, really mattered. And so they try to trick Jesus by saying, out of that 600 plus, which is the most important one? Well, if he says which one is the most important... They were like, well, are you saying the other 599 plus aren't important then? You know, you get where they're going with this? Like, he's pretty creative. So Jesus says this, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And they're like, okay. And then he says, and the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. No, we just asked for one, Jesus. Stop. You know, like, like we just wanted one. Well, what Jesus does is he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, that says, love God. Love God. And then he ties on Leviticus 19, 18, love your neighbors yourself. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how when the rich young ruler comes and says, what must I do to be saved? 
to earn my salvation. He says, do this, do this, do this, do this. I've done it all. I've loved my, love your neighbor as yourself. Yep, I love my neighbor as yourself. Sell all your possessions. Well, I can't love them like that. And, and exposes the idolatry that was going on in his heart, right? So he brings out this love your neighbor as yourself, love people. So love God, love people. We should build a church around that, right? Like, that'd be pretty, pretty nifty, right? Here's the thing. He says all the rest of the laws come, all the 600 plus laws come down to loving God and then loving what God loves, that is so excruciatingly simple. I mean, think about it. Before we act, before we say something, before we type something, before we plan something, before we respond, if we stop and say, will this love God or will this love what God loves, a.k.a. people, his creation? If we just ask ourselves these two things, the way we talk to our kids, the way we talk to our parents, the way we talk to our spouses, the way we conduct ourselves at work, the way, we, the way we're neighbors, the way we're at our school, the way we're on our teams, the way we're with our friends. Everything will be changed based on before I say or do this, does it love God and does it love what God loves? Simple. So simple. The thing is, is that in the simplicity, the application is, is never-ending. We will never stop learning how to love God more. We will never stop learning how to love other people better. I mean, it's just been funny. I don't know if this is a spirit or just something in my head lately, but I've just been asking myself as sort of like, I need to ask better questions to people. I just need to just listen more. I need to ask, I need to see what's going on because I'll, like, I'll see someone and then, and then afterwards, like, like a day later, I was like, oh, I forgot to ask how their kids thing went, right? Like, it's just how can I love better? Because God loves this person. That's people that I like. But what about the knucklehead last night on I-80 in the middle of the night that cut me off and, and just semi almost took me out, right? I was so Christ-like without, because I was looking for tables to flip over. I was, oh, no, no, not, 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 not that Christ-likeness, but, uh, right? Like, if someone hurts me or offends me or I, or I disagree, I disagree with their stands on things. How do I love them? How do I love them? Instead of coming with condemnation, how do I come with curiosity? Say, why do you believe this? How did you get here? You're in a world of hurt right now, and instead of hurting the hurt, how do I bring healing to the hurting? And, and how do I get to know how this person ended up believing this, doing this, saying this, acting like this, believing this, submitting to this, surrendering to this? How do I love people better? Because God loves them. And if I don't love what God loves, do I really love God? Because to love someone means you're going to love what they love. At least with God. And, and the simplicity of it is that instead of God giving us a complex law, he gives us a simple relationship. Let's be honest. Relationships are simple, but they're not easy. Love each other well. It's not that hard. Oh, wait. It's simple, but it's not easy. And so... 
I would challenge us. A lot of times, I, I'll never forget, I actually had, I had a, a, a kid in, in my youth group in, in Oklahoma, and she was always on the periphery. She never wanted to plug in, and, and she had a hard time kind of gelling with the other kids. I mean, we had like 60 kids in the group. I mean, there was plenty of opportunities for her to, to connect a lot of different kids across the whole board, you know, and, and, and finally I was like, hey, what's going on? She goes, I just, I can't stand the immaturity. I was like, the immaturity of the high school kids? And he was like, yeah, they're just so immature. They're so immature. And so she, all she did, I, was, I loved it that she helped with the children's ministry, but it was almost like she only could relate with the younger kids. She couldn't relate with kids her own age. And so finally I said, if your maturity can't handle immaturity, I question your maturity. Because relationships are simple, but not easy. Step into that relationship. Develop that relationship. Think, the relationship, instead of giving us a law or a list of tasks or to-dos or not-to-dos, he gives us a relationship. And that relationship develops, it defines and directs everything else. We never should stop growing in our relationship. This week I heard, I was talking with someone, and, and you know, the whole thing, if the grass is greener on the other side, water your grass, Should I say that again? If the grass is greener on the other side, water your dang grass. Like, the grass is green because it's been watered. Water your grass. Like, when I said that, I was like, I'm shaking. That's so simple, but yet it's so profound. When God seems distant, when he seems like, where are you? Yes, he seems like that sometimes. But that means that there's things that we need to push through, things that we need to surrender. Maybe sometimes there's things inside of us. Maybe there's walls that we've put up. Maybe there's barriers that we've allowed others to put in our lives to where God seems distant. God isn't distant. We are. God's not distant. We are. He is pursuing us. He is, he is hounding us with love and grace and compassion. Don't jump ship. Dive in deeper with him. We always talk about how what we feed grows and what we starve dies. Don't starve your soul. Feed your soul. Feed that relationship. It's brutally simple, but it's not easy. We have to start with one step and then another and then another and another. We need to love him and we need to love what he loves. Okay. Now, they have been questioning. We're almost done here. Finally, now, Jesus turns the tide, and he turns the tide here at the end of chapter 22, and all of chapters 23, 24, and 25, Jesus goes on the offensive. They had him on the ropes. Now, he gets them onto the ropes, and he closes out with this. He says, then surrounded by the Pharisees, I mean, get the picture here, right? Like Rocky is backed up against the turnbuckle and, and they're all surrounding it around him, right? He is surrounded by his opposition. Jesus asks them a question. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They reply, well, this is an easy one. He's the son of David. Jesus responded, then why does David, speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit, call the Messiah my Lord? For David said, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies beneath your feet. Since David called the Messiah my Lord, how can the Messiah be his son? No one can answer him. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Basically, he's saying the Messiah doesn't belong to David. 
The Messiah belongs to God. The Messiah is God. You see, they wanted a political Messiah. They wanted a, an, an economic Messiah. They wanted a, all the things that we want on earth. They didn't realize that the Messiah would actually be God incarnate in his own creation. Remember a, a friend once saying, we're all waiting for our ships to come in, right? Like, like a lot of us are like, someday that's going to happen, and someday I'm going to, you know, and that's what they were waiting. They were sitting around waiting for the Savior to come in and save them and get them what they wanted, right? The legalists wanted some help to live the law out better. Be careful of anything or anyone that, that tries to turn Jesus into helping us live out the Old Testament law better, the Old Testament system. That's not why Jesus came. He came to fulfill it and replace it, set us free, give us a new yoke for him. That's why Jesus came. So the legalists just said, well, Jesus, if you can help us live out the law better, then you're useful for us, right? But they missed the point. The zealots, they wanted a political, a national freedom. And so they wanted someone to come in, guns a-blazing, and, and reinstate the, the nation as they wanted it, as, as they believed God intended it, Right? The Herodians, the followers of Herod, neglected the idea of a savior because they were quite honestly doing pretty good. Rome was treating them well. And so, so like, yeah, hey, we're, we're good. We don't need a savior. We're fine just the way we are. The big idea here is this. Sometimes we work harder to discredit Jesus than to simply believe him. Now, I'm not talking belief. I'm talking belief. We always talk about how, how do we move from areas of, of our life, right? And that means if I, if I believe that the plane will help me get to Denver, I can believe it in here, but am I actually going to go get on the airplane? How do we believe Jesus? How do we put, let him put that into action in our lives? Or do we work so hard to say, well, no, I don't think that's going to work. I don't really believe that, right? It's like all the preconceived notions that I had about Oklahoma that I knew nothing about. I didn't really know anybody from Oklahoma. But once I actually got there, I realized I had been missing the point the whole time. It's kind of like in verse 29. It says, we miss the power of God. Jesus came to bring the new wine, the better way, the true life. So here's two quick takeaways from this passage. Number one, we must love God with every fiber of our being. If God gives us a relationship and not a law, then we should pursue that relationship. We should love God with every fiber of our every fiber of our being. We can't hold back. We can't play games. We can't play critic. We can't look for the cafeteria plan where I oh I want this but not this. Right? We need to go all in. Either He's God or He's not. Either He's King or He's not. Either He's our Savior or He's not. There is no middle ground. If we don't have this monstrously large, beautiful, overwhelming yes then we're going to fall for anything. We need to know who Jesus is in our lives and give our lives to him. And then the last thing is this. We must love what God loves. For us to truly love someone means that we're going to love what they love. Instead of being a consumer that then becomes a critic uh, that keeps us at distance, we need to go all in with him and say, God, I don't want to like this person, but you love this person, so I got to be kind. I gotta be loving. I gotta I gotta readjust how my thinking is with this person or this situation, right? Like like I, I don't know why all these bad things are happening to me. Okay, God, do I really believe and trust that you're in control right now? 
And then in all of this, I'm actually going to see how you're going to love me through this. So how do we move from belief to action, from knowing to doing? What is one thing in our lives right now that we need to believe Jesus with? What is a person, a relationship, a dynamic, a situation, a circumstance, a hardship, a trial, a struggle, a temptation, an addiction, a fear, whatever it is, what is one thing that we need to believe Jesus with right now? And what does it mean to surrender that to him instead of trying to discredit, ignore, rationalize, deny, or critique him? What's really cool is that this morning we get to have baptisms. And we're going to hear some stories of this, of people who stopped running away from God. I mean, we've had some incredible stories, and we're going to have some more incredible stories this morning as we go out. But listen to how God meets us in the reality of our lives. He loves us. He pursues us. He doesn't want us to, to, to kick and accuse and try to trap and condemn him. He says, surrender to me. I love you. You can trust me. So my prayer is that we, we, can, we can listen to that. We can surrender our lives to him. He's good, he's loving, and he wants to set us free. Let's pray. After we're done with this last song, we can head straight downstairs. If you have kids in the nursery or uh, sprouts, please go get them first, and then we can head outside, and then we have a couple baptisms that we're going to get to. So, God, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for drawing us to yourself. God, I know a lot of times we want to play games, and a lot of times we don't even know we're playing games. We've been hurt. We've been confused. Maybe we've been misled. And oftentimes, in your name. God, help us to see through those things. I, I really think that the people in these stories this morning meant well. They wanted to protect their way of life. They wanted to protect their system. They wanted to protect the people that they were trying to lead or care for. I, I really do think that some of them thought that they were doing what they needed to do. Just like probably some of us. But God, help us to stop fighting against you. Help us to stop trying to accuse you, deny you, condemn you. God, you love us. You didn't come to put a heavy burden on us. You came to take that heavy burden off. God, you came to give us freedom because you love us. God, clothe us with that, just like the, the guests at your wedding are given a new wardrobe. God, give us a new wardrobe in life. Fill us with the fruit of your spirit, with joy, with peace, with patience and kindness, gentleness, self-control, and so much more. God, help us to care for that relationship, to water the grass of our souls. God, to challenge each other and to encourage each other, to say hard words to each other when we need to and to receive those hard words. But then also to extend and to receive gentle, kind, loving, affirming words as well. God, I thank you for each one that's here. God, I pray that as we wrap up with some worship and then head outside for, for baptisms, God, I pray that your spirit would just speak deep into our hearts, that we'd be encouraged and challenged no matter where we're at with you. God, we love you and we praise you in your name.